Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6, verse 14. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 6. Do you remember daytime soap operas when those were a thing? What was your favorite? No, don't answer that, okay? Um, but you remember shows like Guiding Light, All My Children, As the World Turns? Well, when uh, we were living in California, I became friends with a gentleman who, back in the 90s, he was a regular on the soap, One Life to Live, all right? Um, and I share that with you this morning because today's passage is just a total soap opera. It's just a total soap opera. It's full of scandal, sex, murder, revenge. In more recent days, we've had that so-called reality soap opera of, what, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Today's passage could really be entitled Keeping Up with the Herodians, and we will show you why in just a moment. So would you please stand with me as I read the text, Mark chapter 6, 14 through 29. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, appreciate so much how the Bible is just blunt and honest about just as human beings left to ourselves how truly wicked we are. Left to ourselves, there is nothing that is out of the scope of possibility regarding our behavior and the darkness and the sinfulness. 
God, I pray that as we unpack this passage today that it would uh, convict us, but I pray that it would also bring encouragement where it is needed as well. So God, help us to, to focus, help us to understand. I pray for your help in presenting it today. pray that it would be clear and that it would be in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So this is, as we've discussed in previous weeks, Mark sandwich number three. All right, and what we mean by that is that we've got the top piece of bread, which in this case is the 12 go. And then later on in verse 30, we're going to have the 12 return. Jesus sent the 12 apostles out on a short-term mission project. But then right in the middle, we've got the meat of our sandwiches, of our sandwich, and that is the martyrdom of John the Baptist in today's text, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. So there's our third Mark sandwich. The question is, why did Mark insert the martyrdom of John the Baptist into this story of the short-term mission trip of the apostles? Why did he do that? And I, I think the answer is clear. It, it is to show that those who are on mission with Jesus will experience opposition and persecution. To show that those on mission with Jesus will experience opposition and persecution. I appreciate so much. I think it was in Cora's testimony, her favorite verse was in Revelation 2, about being faithful until the end, even unto death. So it was for John the Baptist, so it would be for Jesus, so it would be for the apostles and church. If we're faithful to the truth of God's word, so it will be for us as well. So our job this morning is to take this text to unpack the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist and to see, hey, in all this soap opera, are, are there truly principles that we can apply to our lives? And the fact of the matter is that, yes, there absolutely are. And I think the best way for us to approach this text this morning is to just highlight each of the characters. So let's talk about each one of them. First of all is our old friend, John the Baptist. Our old friend, we talked about him in detail way back on January 15th in Mark chapter 1. You remember that John was related to Jesus. Back when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she would give birth to Jesus the Messiah, Gabriel said in Luke 1.36, he said, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so that miraculous birth, that miraculous son given to Elizabeth was none other than John the Baptist. And so probably, most likely, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins of some degree. Next, John the Baptist was the last prophet. He was the last prophet. At his birth, it was said in Luke 176, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so when John the Baptist came on the scene, it had been about 400 years since God had spoken through the prophet Malachi. That's a long time, 400 years since the last prophet. And now through John the Baptist, God would speak to his people once again. And specific, specifically, God would speak through John to prepare the people for the imminent coming of Jesus the Messiah. And as such, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus. As he himself said in John 1.23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, 
just as the prophet Isaiah said. And so you remember back in uh, Mark chapter 1, we talked about him being a spiritual bulldozer, right? A heavenly earth mover to remove the rubble of sin from people's lives, to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And the way in which that was done, the way that John accomplished this was through preaching repentance. John preached repentance. Just as it says in Luke 3, 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we've been talking a lot about repentance the last few weeks, and you're very familiar with this definition by now. But repentance is a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. A change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. It is, in military terms, that about face, about face. Just as we were talking with those who were baptized today, repentance is turning away from sin and turning to Jesus alone for forgiveness. We turn away from the past and we turn toward the future. We turn away from our old lives and we turn toward a new life. It's more than, it's more than remorse or feeling sorry for what we've done. It's more than a desire to escape the consequence of our sin. It's more than confession. Rather, it is that complete change of direction. Well, as we mentioned last week, when you call people to repentance, by definition, you necessarily also have to point out their sin. You call it out, which John did when he rebuked Herod Antipas. He rebuked Herod Antipas, who is our second character in keeping up with the Herodians. Uh, first, you need to know about Herod Antipas, that, that name, Herod. It's a family name, which is why we encounter several different Herods in the New Testament. And it's very important that you keep your Herods straight because they are different and they have different roles to play. Today, we're talking about a specific Herod, Herod Antipas, who had an infamous father named Herod the Great. The father of Herod Antipas was Herod the Great. Now, what do you know about that guy? Bad news, Herod the Great. He ruled Palestine when Jesus was born. And it says in Matthew 2.16, when Herod, he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so what we know about this guy is he's paranoid, he's insecure, and he's ruthless. Can you imagine giving the order to kill all of these children in this territory, two years and under, all for the sake of trying to do away with this one that was called King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, when Herod the Great died, his territory was divided into four sections. Um, this is a situation known as a tetrarchy. A tetrarchy I mean, it simply means a rule by four. So rather than have one ruler, you're going to have four rulers. And the four rulers that succeeded Herod the Great, first of all, Herod the Great's sister would rule one part. And then Herod the Great's sons would rule over the other three. And one of these sons who ruled over one of the four parts was Herod Antipas. Specifically, he would be the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. He's the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, um, as we look at a map, and you know how I love maps, 
Um, it's the pink parts. The pink parts. And of course, Galilee, Jesus has recently spent a ton of time in Galilee. That's to the west. Perea is the, the territory to the east. And Herod Antipas, he governed this territory from about 4 BC to AD 39, which is roughly the ministry and life of Jesus, is it not? And so what you need to understand, though, is that these tetrarchs were not sovereign kings. Rather, they functioned more like governors. Who was their boss? The Roman emperor, right? The Roman emperor is overall. He's the one that, with the real power, but in order to maintain order, he had to have these governors in these various regions. And so while he, King Herod is called a king, he's not a king in the same sense of sovereignty like we think of a king. However, Herod Antipas was a chip off the old block. He was evil like his dad. And one of the evil things he did was he married his brother's wife. Herod Antipas married his brother's wife. He had an affair with her. This is the, the wife of his brother, Herod Philip, which then brings us to the third character in our story, that wicked wife of Herod Antipas, whose name was Herodias. Herodias. Now, you notice, what do you notice in her name? The name Herod. And that is in part because she is actually the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And here's where things get weird, if they're not weird already. Um, she was actually the daughter of one of those two sons that Herod the Great had murdered because he was paranoid that that son or those sons were going to try to usurp his throne. And so Herod the Great murdered two sons, a daughter of one of the sons, who is this Herodias. But then she went on to become married to Herod Philip, which if you're keeping score, means that she married her uncle, right? And if that's not bad enough, then she's unfaithful to her uncle that she married, and then she married Herod Antipas, who just happens to also be an uncle, so when we put the pieces together, Herodias was Herod Antipas's niece, sister-in-law, and now wife. So I told you this was like a soap opera. Well, when the John the Baptist called out this sinful behavior, remember John is a prophet. He's called, he's, he has been called to call people to repentance, which necessarily means calling out people's sin. Um, Herodias resented John the Baptist. She resented John the Baptist. And resented probably isn't even a strong enough word. For we read in verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. She so despised the man who called out her sin that she wanted him to be dead. She was consumed with wanting John the Baptist eliminated. Now, can you think of an Old Testament woman that was similar to Herodias? Jezebel? I think there's a lot of similarities, actually, between Ahab and Jezebel and also Herod Antipas and Herodias. It's pretty interesting, actually, to, to make that connection because, remember, John the Baptist has a lot in common with Elijah, who was the prophet that was involved with Jezebel and Ahab. Now you have the next Elijah to come who is involved with the next Jezebel to come, if you will. Well, the only thing that kept John the Baptist from being put to death was Herod Antipas, 
who very much had a love-hate relationship with John. On the one hand, he hated having his sin called out publicly. It was embarrassing as well as convicting. But on the other hand, he recognized something special about John the Baptist, something righteous, even holy. And so in contrast to his wife, Herod Antipas did not want John put to death. He actually enjoyed listening to John speak. It says in verse 20, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so Herod Antipas, his solution to this problem was to imprison John in a fortress known as Machaerus situated high on a hilltop on the northeastern end of the Dead Sea. This would accomplish several things. It would keep John quiet, no more public embarrassment about having the sin called out. It would hopefully appease Herodias, and ultimately it would keep John alive. So everybody wins, right? Well, we'll see that that's not the case. And if you're Considering the timeline of events for John the Baptist, you'll recognize that he was imprisoned very shortly after Jesus was baptized, which means that by the time we reach today's passage, John has been in prison for how long, do you think? About a year. John has been in prison at Machaerus for probably a year. Now, do you think this really is going to appease Herodias? Well, not even. You know the story. Rather, Herodias plotted John's murder. Herodias plotted John's murder. And verse 21 tells us about the scheme. It says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now let's set the scene. Nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee on Herod's birthday... And Herod wants to impress him. Herod wants to please and impress his guests. Now, knowing what we know about Herod Antipas, what do you think was the character of this party? It's not a good place to be, all right? It would be full of excess and debauchery, a very unholy place to be. And so without going into any unnecessary detail, what kind of dance do you think this was that Herodias' daughter was dancing before all of these drunk men? It was an unholy dance. And so don't lose sight of the fact also that this dance was being performed by Herod's stepdaughter. Such was the twisted nature of this family. Well, Herod, probably drunk and full of bravado in front of his guests, he goes on to say in the second half of verse 22, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, what, that's pretty hilarious, actually. Why? He, it's not his to give. It's not his to give. Remember, he's more of a governor under the rule of the Roman emperor. He can't give away even an inch of his territory, but he wants to appear big before his guests. And this is a statement that he would deeply regret because he even makes an oath. And so to save face, he's going to have a problem here in verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
How do you think Herod Antipas felt in that moment? Oops. I'm sure his heart sunk. He became pale and faint when he realized the predicament he found himself in, wanting to keep John alive, but making this public oath before all of his guests. His evil wife had outwitted him, caught him in his words in front of his guests. And verse 26 goes on to say, And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. A better translation probably than exceedingly sorry would be greatly distressed. Now, why do I say that? Because it is the same Greek word used here is used to describe the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. And we know how just agonized Jesus was in Gethsemane. That's how Herod felt in this situation. Well, the death of John the Baptist was not the end of the story for Herod Antipas. Rather, this whole episode, this whole thing would go on to haunt him. How do we know this? Well, because if we go back to the very beginning, again, considering the context of today's passage, this, was, this story was like a flashback. It's like a flashback because what triggered this was Herod heard about Jesus and his disciples. And so Herod is haunted by the, by the death of John the Baptist and thinks that what he hears about Jesus is John having been raised from the dead. And so Mark 6, 16, when Herod heard of all that he heard about Jesus, it says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, have you ever been afraid? We've all been afraid. How terrifying must this be to think that the one that you were responsible for beheading is now coming back to haunt you. Um, that would be terrifying. And such was the guilt that tormented Herod Antipas for the remainder of his days. And so, tragically, those are the three characters in our soap opera today. John the Baptist, Herod Antipas, and Herodias. Now, to shift into the application section of the sermon, let, let, let's consider one lesson that we can learn from each of these characters. Because you might look at the story and think, I, I got nothing. What, what does this have to do with me? Actually, there's a lot. One thing that we can apply from our lives today, first of all, from John the Baptist. From John the Baptist. And the life lesson from John the Baptist is this. Focus on the end of the story. Focus on the end of the story. You say, well, Chad, that's not very encouraging. In fact, that's quite depressing because the end of the story is John losing his head, Right? That's not the end of the story, is it? For you see, the very moment that John's head became separated from his body, he entered into the very presence of Jesus. And as it says in James 1, 2, 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We don't talk enough about eternal rewards. For you see, while as we've emphasized through baptism today, salvation is a gift of God's grace, correct? We don't earn it. 
It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We don't earn salvation. It is a gift from God that we receive by faith. However, our eternal rewards are earned. And I ask you, just what kind of reward do you think John the Baptist received? Oh my goodness. And how long would that reward last? Forever. How long is your new car going to last? I feel bad for John the Baptist. Um, He probably feels bad for us as we live in relative comfort and safety. But here's the thing that we learn from John. To remain faithful to the truth of God's word amidst opposition, we must focus on the end of the story. We must have an eternal perspective. To remain faithful to the truth of God's word amidst opposition, and we can all agree that opposition is going to grow and grow and grow. I, don't, I hate to be a cynic. I don't think there's any turning this ship around. We must focus on the end of the story. We must look at our struggles, our challenges, our lives through an eternal perspective. We focus way too much on the here and now and not nearly enough on eternity to come. I love that verse that talks about our, you know, even the hardest things that we go through on this earth will be considered light and momentary troubles in the light of what we experience in eternity. And so I think that's the lesson from John the Baptist. Don't feel bad for John. He's doing pretty well today, better than we are. Focus on the end of the story, and that will give us perspective on everything that we experience here. Next, from Herod Antipas, life lesson is this. No one has to be haunted by their guilt. No one has to be haunted by their guilt. We spoke earlier of how the beheading of John the Baptist, it tormented Herod. This was evidenced in verse 16 when he said, "Um, John, whom I beheaded. Now, what's significant about that is if you go to the Greek in the original language in which this was written, um, this is the the positioning of the words. It's in something called the emphatic position. The word order in the Greek is emphatic, which means that Herod was emphasizing when he says this, it's like, I did this. I'm responsible. I am the one who put John to death. It's the statement of a guilty man with a guilty conscience, a giant millstone of burden that he carried around till his death. The Life Application Commentary, which I highly recommend, if you're looking for like a commentary, you know, to go be a companion in your Bible study. I, I love the simplicity, but also the very practical nature of the life application commentary. And just a few pages, there's a lot of depth and a lot of good stuff. But it said this, it said, while Herod had succeeding in silencing John, he had not succeeded in silencing his own guilty conscience. And you know, that, that might describe some of you today. You are tormented by a guilty conscience, perhaps even as a believer the memory of the awful things that you have done. And perhaps that's the reason that some of you have turned to addiction of various kinds. It's an effort to numb the pain. It's an effort to forget. Perhaps that's why some of you, while it appears very righteous on the outside, but some of you are so busy doing really good things 
You're trying to outrun your guilt. An effort to make amends for the bad things that you have done. Church, that's not God's way. It doesn't have to be that way. No one has to be haunted by a guilty conscience. We read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, this verse is so important. Can we, can we say it together in unison? Say it with me. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? What could be better than being forgiven by God Almighty, the creator of the universe, and also the one who will one day judge and to be cleansed by him that we might be set free once and for all from our guilt. To live in the reality of what it says in Hebrews 8.12, it says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. No more. Even to the point where it says in Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, our sins, our guilt from us. How far is the east from the west? Infinite. That's how far our sins have been taken away from us. But here's the thing. If God so thoroughly forgives us, we must thoroughly forgive ourselves. If God so thoroughly forgives us, and he does, right? then we must thoroughly forgive ourselves. Some of you act as if it's a righteous thing to live in your guilt. It's not. It's actually sinful. Because when you do that, you put yourself in a position that's greater than God. God Almighty forgives you, but you don't forgive you, and so you're putting yourself up here when God... No. Who do you think you are? That God forgives you, but you don't forgive. Church, if God so thoroughly forgives us, we must thoroughly forgive ourselves because the lesson learned from Herod Antipas is no one has to be haunted by their guilt. Next, we learn from good old Herodias. Deal with your unforgiveness before it consumes you. Deal with your unforgiveness before it consumes you. I mean, if I had to choose one sin as a pastor that holds believers back, from being all that they could be in Christ. You know what it is? It's unforgiveness. If I had to choose what I think is Satan's greatest weapon in developing footholds and strongholds in the lives of believers, you know what it is? Unforgiveness. Some of you here this morning, even as believers, you are in intense spiritual bondage because of your refusal to forgive. And just like Herodias, guess what? It is consuming you. It is eating you alive, which ultimately will kill you. Just like the quote says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. In contrast, there is freedom that comes when we choose to forgive. And that's not an easy choice. Some of you have been profoundly hurt, profoundly offended, 
But when by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to do supernaturally what we cannot do naturally ourselves, when we choose with our will by the power of the Spirit not to allow the hurt or offense done against us to rule our lives, then we can experience freedom. Jesus is our example, by the way. Did anybody do anything bad to Jesus? Jesus who said from the cross, Father, forgive them. From the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As followers of Christ, called to walk in his footsteps, called to do what he did, we are commanded in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so, The lesson from Herodias is deal with your unforgiveness before it consumes you. I don't mean to trivialize that. I don't mean to say that's an easy thing. I know it's a very hard and challenging thing. But this I also know. With God, all things are possible. And that includes forgiving even the most heinous of offenses done to us. If you need help with that, would you please reach out? Would you please let us walk with you? and talk about what that means practically and what forgiveness looks like where you are struggling the most. Let us pray together. Father, I pray that um, your word, the seed that has been sown, would find its home today in hearts that are good soil, that it would take root in people's lives and that it would bear much fruit. God, I pray especially for those who are struggling with forgiving themselves. I pray for those who are struggling with forgiving others. And God, may you supernaturally give us the power and the strength to do what we cannot do ourselves. Thank you for your forgiveness. I pray that every single person would walk out of this building today with freedom. Make it so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.